Um, so if you have a Bible with you, we're going to continue our series in Acts, Acts chapter 9, uh, in verses 32 through 42. This is an example, this is an album cut text. This is not one of the famous stories, but it's, it's become a favorite, like album cuts often do. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text on the screen. I hope that everybody can see it. Uh, if not, um, I hear there's online Bibles. But let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. I, I pray that, as your word says, that you are able to do more than we ask or imagine, that you, would, that you wouldn't just rearrange our mental furniture, but that you would completely rebuild what we understand to be possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, in the Smithsonian Institute, they have a Bible. And it's not like the Gutenberg Bible or something like that. It's just, it's an old Bible, but it's a Bible. Um, and if you look at the Bible, there's a picture of it. It's a little blurry, sorry. Uh, it looks like someone has taken an X-Acto knife to it and cut parts out. That's because that's exactly what they did. Now, the reason it's in the Smithsonian, because I'm sure there's people cutting up Bibles left and right, uh, is because this, this Bible belonged to Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, and Thomas Jefferson, you have to understand, he, he had an understanding of the world that the supernatural and the miraculous were impossible. And so he wanted to recover who he understood the real Jesus to be. And so you know what he did is he went to the New Testament and he cut out all the miracles and all the supernatural things. He he cut out the virgin birth, and he cut out any time an angel appears, and he cuts out any time Jesus does a miracle, and he, he cuts out the resurrection. And by the time Thomas Jefferson was done with Jesus, Jesus uh, was a moralistic philosopher, intellectual kind of guy. Oddly enough, he was Thomas Jefferson, essentially, and uh, in seminary, as I read you know, all these skeptical people who were trying to recover the historical Jesus, they always turn Jesus into themselves, as, as, as always happens. But you see, Thomas Jefferson had an understanding of what was possible and impossible, and he reduced Jesus accordingly. Isn't that awful? Well, we do it too, don't we? If we're going to be honest... We all carry a lot of skepticism. And there's a reason why. It's because nearly everyone who's listening to this was educated in the West. And you may not know this, but even our foundation of knowledge is based on doubt, is based on saying, I don't think that's true. Can I doubt that that's true? You, you, can, you can ask Caleb Coho all about this. He's a philosophy professor. He'll back me up. Western education is valuable, but it's also an indoctrination into skepticism. We all had skepticism installed in us. I mean, and we see this all over our society. The, we we kind of have this image that the more intelligent and enlightened a person is, the more skeptical they are, the less they believe anything at all. You see these, si these, these signs around that say science is real, okay? Meaning you can only really call what's proven by the scientific method true and real. Funny little thing about that. 
There's a bunch of things that are part of reality you can't prove or access through the scientific method. For starters, the scientific method. <laughs> but also ethics, love, meaning, the origin of the universe, the origin of life on earth, beauty, right? Like all of these things, like think about what we're saying. That our, our understanding that we've all been taught of how to arrive at truth through doubt and skepticism, it's insufficient. Very frequently you hear debates or see books, faith versus science, faith or science. You know, like, like science and rationality are over there and then faith and belief are kind of over there and, and never the twain shall meet. Even people who are committed Christians, like yours truly, have this as a big part of my mental furniture. And even though I believe theoretically God can do anything, and I'll, I say, yes, I believe Jesus did these things. Yes, I believe these miracles happened, that Jesus could do all this stuff. Still, I find my skepticism clamping down on what I believe Jesus can do right now. I have my own skepticism that projects onto Jesus. I reduce him accordingly into something that doesn't offend my skeptical mind too much. And I know none of you are like me. And this has a huge effect besides just kind of our intellectual life. Because if you don't expect Jesus to do anything that doesn't offend your skepticism, you're not even going to try, are you? If you don't believe it's possible for Jesus to deliver somebody radically out of a life of bondage and addiction, right, you're not even going to try. If you don't believe it's, it's, it's possible for Jesus to heal someone with a serious lifelong condition, then you're not even going to try to pray for them. You don't think it's possible. And because you don't try, you don't see it, and it reinforces our skeptical belief. You see how that vicious circle works? Is there any reason for us to believe that Jesus didn't just do this stuff in the Gospels, but even though he isn't bodily with us, that he is still the same Jesus, that he is just as present and active as he was in the Gospels? We're going to take a look at two very similar episodes in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 32 through 42. Here's how we're going to run it today. We're going to look at the text together. We're just going to ask, what is the message of the text? So we're going to attend to the details, all that fun stuff. Then we're going to say, what is the message to, that, that this text is, is, is telling us? Because this isn't put in here just for fun. And then we're going to say, and what does that mean for how we walk today? So let's get into the text. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, where is Peter? Peter is hanging out on the coastal plains. I brought a little map so you can envision this. Right? The text is good too. There we go. 
Okay, so Jerusalem right here. If you wanted to take ship in the Mediterranean Sea, you had to go along this particular road uh, to Joppa to get a ship. Okay, that's how it's like going to the airport. But this was, you know, a, a decently long road. And Lydda, where Peter, this first story takes place, is like a truck stop town. It's a place on the way to somewhere. This is not a, a big town. There may have been only a few hundred people in it. But, and that's going to come into play later. Just remember that. So what we see Peter do here has echoes of something Jesus did in Mark chapter 2 when a paralyzed man was brought before him. He said to the man, get up and make your bed. And Peter does the exact same thing. What strengthens this point early, further is that Peter doesn't say, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. He says what? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. So even though Jesus isn't bodily present, the one who's doing the healing is Jesus. Okay, let's move on to the next uh, story and see if it relates at all. It does, I'll ruin it. Uh, <laughs> verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Guys, she's sensitive about her name. <laughs> Don't, that's not her fault that her Greek name is Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So we know that she is at least merchant class. You know how I know? She had an upstairs. It was not customary to have, especially in a smaller town like that. Uh, you would only have a handful of houses that had two stories. This was, this was like... Green Valley Ranch or something like, not Green Valley Ranch, what's the, Green, Greenwood Village? Is that it? I don't know. You know where the big houses are? It's one of those, <laughs> but far fewer. <laughs> Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now we get some idea of, we, we see she was full of charity and good works. We see what she was up to is she was helping some of the most vulnerable people in society. Widows, it seems in particular, using her resources and even her own hands to clothe them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Now, I've wanted to bring this up because we've had a few other miracle accounts throughout Acts, so I just want to deal with this first question because some sleazy biblical scholars, I shouldn't call them sleazy, <laughs> critical, skeptical, want to say that this is a story that is meant to be taken as legendary, okay? So the question is, is does the text bear that out? Does it seem like Luke is meaning to give us a legendary story? And of course, the reason they call it legendary is because it has a miracle in it. All right. 
So, first of all, let's remember the audience of Acts, those of you who were here for the first sermon. We talked about Theophilus being a Roman noble. A Roman noble would have been highly educated in their system, and in ancient history, the Romans had a very high standard of accuracy for an ancient history, right? It's not like they were these, these soft-headed, gullible people. If, if a Roman noble were to smell that you are not throwing straight dice with your history, they're going to discount the entire thing. Okay, so we have to remember the audience. It, something that's very interesting is that we know Luke has been on this particular road, the coastal plains road. Uh, in Acts 21, we're told uh, he gives us a first-person narration about being on this road. And it shows, because he talks about Lydda being a very short distance to Joppa. We don't see that in other places where we have no reason to believe Luke has gone. Okay? He's very unspecific. Like if I ask you guys, how far is Minneapolis from Kedosha? I doubt many of us could give an answer if we don't have our Google on us. Right? You didn't have that. So if he knows the distance, he gets specific. If he doesn't, he's unspecific. Make sense? If you're working on a history and you're visiting and collecting stories of the early apostles' acts, you, if you're in Lydda and you've heard this story about Aeneas, Aeneas rather, or if you're in Joppa and you've heard the story of Tabitha, do you suppose Luke maybe asked around, is there any evidence that he has some first-person knowledge? He didn't have to include their names. He could have just said a man, couldn't he? I mean... Think about this. If you were ever on the coastal plains road and you knew this story, might you stop in at a truck stop town and ask anybody, hey, is this story true? You guys know about a guy named Aeneas who, who was paralyzed for eight years. Peter came and, and it says everybody, all of Sharon came to Christ as a result of this. And this is maybe 30 years after the, the event, 25 years. Like, that's easily falsifiable. By the time you get to person 15 who doesn't know what you're talking about, you're like, oh, that was nonsense. Or, or you go to Joppa, right, smallish port town, and you say, hey, where are the houses that have two stories? Oh, there's four of them. Um, great. Did, did, did someone live there named Tabitha, also called Dorcas? Um, you know, she was dead, uh, helped out widows a lot, right? Like, you see... Like, it's not that hard to find that person, is it? Or at least somebody who had knowledge of the event. So put this together with me. Either Luke is telling us the straight dope and trying to give, uh, give sort of like real historical detail so that you understand it's a history, or this is a big bluff. I'll tell you why it's a big bluff. Remember where Joppa was? It's a port town. Theophilus is a Roman noble. They got stationed places. They traveled places. So his entire project of Luke and Acts to convince Theophilus that this is all real hinges on a bluff that Theophilus never visits Joppa and asks a question or two. Doesn't seem like if, that, if he's bluffing, that's a heck of a bluff. I mean, he's a good faker or he's telling the truth. It is not meant to be a historical legend. 
But there's something else about this story is that it also resembles something that Jesus did in Mark chapter 5. Some of you know the story of, the, of, of Jairus's daughter. Some messengers come to Jesus because a little girl has died. And Jesus goes to the house, right? So messengers come to Peter, tell him Tabitha has died. He goes to the house. What does, he, what does Jesus do when he gets there? He sends everybody out. What does Peter do? He sends everybody out. And then Jesus sat down with the girl and he said, we're told the Aramaic is Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. Now, did anybody notice that Dorcas's Aramaic name is included, Tabitha? Peter, speaking Aramaic, would have said Tabitha Kumi. Tabitha, get up. Tabitha, Talitha, it's not accidental. Okay? Luke is pointing us towards the fact that what Peter is doing is not really what Peter's doing. It's what Jesus is doing. That Jesus isn't there, but that Jesus is still. Still what? He's still doing what we think impossible. He's still empowering his people, and he's still building his kingdom. That's the message of the text. These two stories that happened show us that Jesus isn't done. Even though he's not bodily present, he is still there, and he's still doing Jesus stuff, okay? He's still doing more than we think possible, empowering his people and building his kingdom. Those, those three points are key. He's still doing more than we think possible. I choose my words carefully because there's disagreement in the church over kind of what's the role of miracles and all that stuff today. And there's four basic views for our, you know, the miracles that we see in the New Testament for today. Four basic views. They are called yes, no, yes and no, and dunno. Those are the technical, when you go to seminary, that's what they teach you. Yes, no, yes and no, dunno. So some are, say yes. The miracles that we see in the New Testament um, we, we can, you know, happen today. Uh, some say, no, there's three ages of miracles, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, and we really, like, there's no miracles in the David story, the Abraham story, that sort of thing. And so they're not for today. And then there's the yes and no, which is, yes, it's possible, but it's not quite the same. You don't see it with the same frequency as when, you know, Peter was walking the earth and, and, seemingly healing a lot more. And then there's the don't know. Um, I guess I'd be a don't know, to be honest with you. I'm still processing all this. Um, some days I lean yes and no. Some days I don't know. Um, but no matter what your view, and we could discuss that, that'd be fun, uh, we still need to believe that Jesus is doing more than we think possible. Even if you don't think the miraculous things are for today. We also can't just put our skepticism on Jesus and say that cool stuff doesn't happen anymore and shrink Jesus into this powerless historical figure that you might worship, that you might believe in, but until you get to heaven, you're not really expecting him to do anything. That we need to reject. 
we need to expect that Jesus is still doing more than we think is possible. And also, Jesus is still empowering his people. This is one of the really clear messages of the entire book of Acts. Jesus isn't there to do it anymore bodily. But whenever we see God do anything in the book of Acts, it is almost always through his people. And that pattern holds throughout the history of the church. God shows up and does things where his people go. He empowers his people. And he's also building his kingdom. Do you ever wonder about, I actually was talking to a couple people in my office, and you know, neither of these folks are Christians. They're like, why are the miracles like always like health and food? You know, those are kind of the, the main things Jesus does. They're not like battle miracles or parlor tricks or something like that. It's always, and, and, and we may have never asked that question of like, why is it just to say, look at the cool things I could do? You see, miracles not only say this person speaks for God, but they're an announcement of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there is not death, there is not sickness, there is not paralysis, there is not shortages of food. Make sense? So the things that, that Jesus does and then the apostles do are announcements of the kingdom. So even though Jesus isn't bodily present, he's still building his kingdom. And by the way, in both stories, do you notice the end? And tons of people came to faith. It even says in, in the, the little town of Lydda that the whole town, what does it say exactly? All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now that, this is a, stick this somewhere, somewhere like to remember it, not anything else. Um, is that sometimes when the Bible uses all and every, it doesn't mean every last one. So like a few of us went to see the Rockies play a couple weeks ago. Yeah, Derek. Uh, and they were playing the Phillies. And in our section, we were in the outfield, and C.J. Cron hits a, hits a three-run shot, right? And it comes right to our section. Our whole section's going nuts, right? Like going crazy. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan tried to catch the ball. He was a little late, <laughs> slowing down in his old age. But, um, but everybody in our section was going crazy. Would you say that's accurate? But do you remember the Phillies fans behind us? We're in Phillies gear, they were groaning. They weren't going crazy. So does that falsify the, the claim that everyone was going crazy in our section? No, our whole section was going crazy. Just these lame Philly fans were. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that every single person, but it does mean that there was a huge consensus of people coming to Christ as a result of the miracle. What does this mean to us? We need to believe that Jesus still can. That Jesus can still do more than we think possible. He still can empower his people. He still can build his kingdom. Now, I realize that I'm bumping up against some intellectual furniture here. Some of you guys have a somewhat skeptical eyebrow raised. That's okay. I have one too. <laughs> we all have them. It's all right. Keep it handy. But am I saying that Jesus has the power to work a miracle today? Here's my answer. I don't see why not. I don't see why not. Now let's, before the both eyebrows come up, just keep the one. We're going to ask, we're going to define our terms. What is a miracle? Three things a miracle is not. A miracle is not an amazing thing ordained in creation. Sometimes people talk about the miracle of childbirth. It's amazing. It's the work of God, 
just as much as a miracle, but it's part of creation, so not technically a miracle. Uh, also, a miracle is not something happening that is unexplained. You see a bird fly backwards, um, right? Just because we don't know why doesn't necessarily mean it's a miracle. They don't fly backwards, right? Has anybody, has anybody seen a bird fly? Anyway, I feel like that would need an explanation at least. And then it's also not providence. So sometimes, like, hey, hey, I was, like, praying that I could share the gospel with someone, and someone walked up and said, can you share the gospel with me, <laughs> right? That is God's providence. That's the hand of God, but it's not a miracle. A miracle is interference in nature by supernatural power. A miracle is interference in nature by supernatural power, okay? Does that all make sense? All right. I'm not saying that creation ordinance or providence are somehow less than miracles. Those of you who work in medicine, it's just as amazing that you can heal someone through creationally ordained means as, as, as someone could through miraculous means, okay? Now, is it irrational to believe in miracles, at least in the possibility of miracles? Well, uh, you may not know it, but we all have installed in our mainframe the ideas of a guy named David Hume. Anybody Hume? No? Yeah. Heard the name? Okay. David Hume was an 18th century Scottish philosopher and the father of skepticism. Uh, kind of like the idea of seeing is believing. Now, that's not something that occurs naturally to human beings. That was David Hume. And he had reasons, three reasons, why you could not believe in miracles. Here we go. Because he believed you had to establish everything through eyeball evidence. And if you didn't have eyeball evidence, then you can't believe in it. That seems like an intuitive idea. It's Hume. All right. So first of all, he says, you never have witnesses of the right kind of, quote, unquestioned good sense, education, and learning of undoubted integrity. Now, he also calls into question whether someone who's reporting a miracle would qualify as having integrity, education, and the rest of it. So it's a bit of a circular argument there. Makes sense? Right? Like, you can't believe unless you get someone who's reliable. But anyone who reports a miracle is unreliable. Right? You see that? And then he says people love stories of the fabulous. Right? So kind of this desire to believe in something amazing. Now, no argument there. People do love stories of the, of the fabulous, but people also like to strike the hard skeptical pose just as much, right? You, you guys heard of, of Mark Twain's uh, story about the cat that stepped on a hot stove lid? He says, a, a cat steps on a hot stove lid. It will never step on a hot stove lid again. It will also never step on a cold one. Okay, so don't learn the wrong lesson here. Sure, are there false claims? Are there charlatans who claim, who have, who perform false wonders that, to trick people? Yeah, there's plenty of documentaries about such things, but that doesn't mean just because there's false claims, there aren't true ones as well, okay? And then his third reason was that such tales about the miraculous originate, I quote, among ignorant and barbarous peoples. So yeah, super racist. Uh, those are his reasons. And as I said those, you're like, wait, somehow that's in my brain too. Yes, it is, because you're educated in the West, and Hume is part of that. 
And so, is it even true that there's no evidence to believe in that miracles are possible? Are there no, uh, there, are there no examples that are solid? All right. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Yeah, I'll skip to Keener. All right, so Craig Keener is one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. Um, every time he writes a book, it seems to go four volumes and becomes the authoritative work. So he's well-versed in philosophy, history, languages, and the rest of it, okay? He wrote this. This is, this is not two books. This is one book in two volumes because he doesn't know how to write a one-volume book. Um, in it... He, he, he deals with the philosophical, here we go, the philosophical issues in about, oh, the first third. The rest of this, you see, he, he's in touch with the global church. And so he knows lots and lots of people who have witnessed these things firsthand, and he included them. And he invites further inquiry and study and that sort of thing. But he was trying to meet Hume's challenge. These are highly trustworthy people. Um, I'm just going to read you... Maybe two. So thank you for your patience. But the, I mean, this is, this, this is all that's in these books. Okay. Chester Allen Tesoro from Mindanao in the Philippines. Mindana, Mindanao in the Philippines. Uh, he's the assistant pastor at a church uh, that, was in the, that was inviting people in the community to a vacation Bible school. A woman asked for prayer for her son, who was about 30. Chester readily agreed, but when he heard the son's story, he wished that he had not consented, because this case seemed to require of him exceptional faith. The son had been sick and in great pain for months. The family kept the bedridden son just outside the bathroom so they could carry him there when necessary. Chester was the associate pastor, so his pastor asked him to lead the prayer. Although he prayed, he secretly feared that the son would die, so he left as quickly as possible. The next day, however, the mother found him and insisted that he come to their home. Once he got there, she pointed to a man fixing their roof and pressed, do you recognize that guy? Chester asked if this was the brother of the young man he had prayed for. The mother declared that this was her son for whom Chester had prayed the previous day. Initially unable to believe it, Chester went and checked the room where the son had been lying. As the healed man smiled at him, now healed, the young man immediately went back to his former line of work. Here's one that even David Hume would approve of. Dr. Chauncey Crandall. In uh, Friday, October 20th, 2006, he's a cardiologist. 53-year-old uh, auto mechanic, Jeff Markin, checked himself into the hospital in West Palm Beach, Florida, died of a heart attack there. Emergency room personnel labored for nearly 40 minutes to revive him unsuccessfully shocking the flatline man seven times. Crandall was called in to certify the obvious. There was no point in continuing attempts to revive the man. Crandall recounts that Markin was not merely dead, but unusually obviously dead. His face, toes, and fingers had already turned black. Crandall concurred with the obvious conclusion. The patient was declared dead at 8.05 a.m. After writing up his assessment, Crandall left to return to his scheduled patients. Very quickly, however, he felt an extraordinary compulsion from God's spirit to return. He initially, but only briefly, resisted this compulsion, then returned. The nurse was disconnecting the IVs and preparing the body for the morgue 
by sponging it down, yet Crandall suddenly found himself praying over the corpse. Father God, I cry out for the soul of this man. If he does not know you as his Lord and Savior, please raise him from the dead right now in Jesus' name. The nurse glared at him in astonishment, but Crandall instructed the emergency room doctor, who had just walked in, to shock him with the paddle one more time. That's unusual, right? Like, you don't do that. Okay, just making sure. For Crandall, prayer and medicine work ideally together. The other doctors protested. They had all recognized that Markin was beyond resuscitation. Nevertheless, out of respect for his colleague, the doctor complied and shocked Markin's corpse. The guy made a full recovery. Uh, and if you say, well, why wasn't this on the news? It was, <laughs> okay? You, you can still go ask Dr. Crandall about this. He stakes his entire reputation as a cardiologist on it. Uh, the, the, if you ever want to borrow these, you're welcome to it. Um, but those are just some. And I have a bunch more examples, but I realize that I'm getting long-winded. Are there any, mirac any miracles that have reliable reporters? The answer is yes. The question is, what do you do with that? Because your skepticism kicks in, well, there must be another explanation, right? Even if it's a terrible one, it's better than an impossible one. Why? What if Jesus is just still around, not bodily, and still able to do Jesus stuff? What if Jesus still can do more than we think possible? That is what the, the scripture is telling us. We need to have much higher expectations than what our skepticism would reduce Jesus to. Listen, Jesus still can cure cancer. Jesus still can take the hardest heart out there and turn that person into his child. Jesus still can provide when there's way more month than money. Jesus still can save a marriage that is near death. Jesus still can heal you in the places where your soul is the most damaged and make you whole. He still can. Jesus still can break an addiction, sometimes without detox. Now, does this mean that Jesus is always going to do these things by miraculous means every time we ask? No. If I have a heart attack, call the ambulance. Pray for me while it's on the way, <laughs> but call the ambulance, okay? <laughs> sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes you'll pray, and you don't what you hope happened does not happen, okay? Sometimes, if through providence or created ordinance, for instance, a, a healing that happens through medicine and, 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 you know, medical competence and all of that, like, that's still the work of God, is it not? Isn't it God who, who made all things, including the means to heal? But we need to believe that Jesus is able to still do more than we think possible, and also to empower his people. And this is really key. This is where I want us to hear and think through these things, even in community groups. Because what you believe Jesus is capable of is what you're going to try out. <laughs> if you don't think he's capable of anything that David Hume would say he's not capable of, you're not going to try anything. And it just so happens, remember, God uses his people and empowers his people that healings often coincide with prayer, lots and lots of prayer. Someone who's very hard-hearted and against God coming to know and love Jesus coincides with someone with the faith and the guts to try Jesus out and see if he'll do it and share the gospel with that person. 
If we want to see Jesus sustain grace and peace and use grace and peace for 120 years, as is our prayer, we first have to start the church, right? You see how our responsibility and Christ's activity go together. And what we believe Jesus capable of now is either going to make us very, very timid or really, really gutsy. Jesus is still building his kingdom, empowering his people, and doing more than we think possible. There's a, a story in the Gospels. One time when Jesus was away, transfiguration and all that, he was coming back to where, his, where the disciples were. And there was a big crowd. And there was an argument going on between his disciples and some scribes. And seeing Jesus walking back, a bunch of people run over to Jesus. And Jesus is like, what's going on? And a man walks forward and says, um, my son is possessed of an evil spirit that makes him mute and makes him foam at the mouth and makes him, makes him rigid. I brought him to your disciples. They could not cast him out. Jesus has some words for the disciples. <laughs> and, and he asked the man, how long has this been going on? And the man says, since, since he was a boy. And sometimes it even throws him in the fire or in the water to destroy him. And the guy says to Jesus, please, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says back, if I can do anything, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he tells him, everything's possible to the one who has faith. And then this guy says words that ring down through history and could be taken right out of my own brain and heart. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Let's not redu reduce Jesus through our unquestioned skepticism. Instead, let's believe that Jesus still can. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would shake us awake, that you would make us skeptical of our skepticism, that we instead would have great faith in what you are able to do, more than we ask or even imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the table. This table is not Grace and Peace's table. This table is not a Presbyterian table. This is Christ's table. This is for everyone who is committed to following Jesus and has received him as Savior. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. In a like manner, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink it, all of you. Now, the way that we do this is we start from the front row, work our way back. If you could uh, take the elements um, uh, with you to your seat and wait, because we're going we're gonna to partake all together. And if we could go in a, a kind of single direction back to our seats so we don't start getting jammed up. Uh, we do have gluten-free uh, options if you need that. If you have children that are not yet taking from the table, please bring them up and Ed will, will be praying for them. Off to one side here. Is that cool? I, I mean, I already asked. It would be really weird for you to say it's not okay. Sorry about that. Um, let me pray. 
Lord, meet us here at this table. I pray that we could experience your presence, that you would surprise us with what you're able to do even now. In Jesus' name, amen.